Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. And um, as I was thinking about today, today we're going to be looking at this carrying on our series of the I am statements and we're looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus and we're looking at the I am the resurrection and the life and as I've been thinking about today I was thinking about 11 years ago and when I would wander around cemeteries wishing I was in there wishing I was in the grave and uh, so as I kind of look at this story about Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. It's provoked me in thinking about my journey from suicide to, to where, maybe, maybe where I am now. Sounds a bit grandiose, but uh, this kind of journey. So Jesus in the Gospel of John, he says these seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, um, and in seven places he says this, but also uh, he uses this language to describe who he is. Alongside the seven iron statements in John, there are also seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And I think this is a beautiful way to write. And it also happens that as we look at this passage, the I am, the resurrection and the life, we bump into not just Jesus saying that statement, but also performing one of the seven miracles in the Gospel of John. They combine because in this passage, uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. uh, And Jesus confronts something which is almost like a spectre that looms over us, which is death. So uh, I bring good news today. Today's passage is going to be John 11, verse 17 to 44. Jesus finally got there. He found Lazarus uh, already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you hadn't been there, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know whatever you ask God, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. And Martha replied, I know he'll be raised up in the resurrection at the end of the time. Jesus says, you don't have to wait to the end. I am right now resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he lives, he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister and whispered in her ear, ear, The teacher is here and is asking for you. The moment she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered into the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. And he said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, well, if he, lo if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something about it to keep him from dying? There's always a cynic, right? <laughs> After all, he'd opened the eyes of the blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welled up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the, in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus had removed the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time, there is such a stench. He's been dead for four days. Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then to others, he said, go, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know that you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so they might believe that you've sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver, wrapped from head to toe with a handkerchief over his face. Jesus told him, unwrap and let him loose. You might not know this, uh, so I'm going to give you some information today. You ready? You are all going to die. You ready for that? Did you know that? <laughs> We're all going to die. And uh, everyone in this room, is a, it's a reality. And if that's not bad enough, let me give you something else. Uh, let me make it worse. You're actually dying right now. As you get older, you're in the process of dying. As you sit here, your, your heart is getting weaker. Your knees are falling apart. Skin is falling off your face, even as we speak. Gravity is mercilessly attacking your muscles, weighing them down on your skeletal system. You're all going to die. Uh, you will die. And there's something that, as a human condition, we spend most of our time trying to avoid thinking about, don't we? We avoid it. Uh, we try not to be aware of it. We just act as though it's something somewhere out, out there. Uh, Tim Keller, the, the fantastic author, theologian from New Jersey, New York, New, New York, oh, sorry, New York. Um, he said this when he was thinking about this section that we've just read. He said, death looms over and casts a huge shadow over us. Nobody can live a day without some kind of strategy for dealing with the reality and the inevitability of death. Death is inevitable. Um, forgive me, I'm, I'm not feeling that pastoral, so um, we're going to talk about death today. And, the main, and I was saying the main strategy that we, that we use is to try and ignore it. Last Sunday, we, at our Balaam site, we had an evening service, and in the middle of the, uh, the, the worship and the singing, just like we had today, I just felt as though we shouldn't have the preach. And so I, I went up to Jo Frost and I, I said to her, I'm really sorry, I just feel like we shouldn't do the preach today. I don't know why the, the singing and the worship was amazing. And we carried on and then Viv uh, received a text from a lady in church saying that her husband had gone missing and she didn't know where he was. She thought she might, he might be 
suicidal. And so Viv and I left, uh, left some fantastic leaders in charge and we went to her home. Her kids hadn't eaten, so we'd, we'd put, brought some food on the way. And I did what I only thought of when someone's feeling suicidal is, let me go and find some cemeteries. Let me go and find, see if he's there, because that's what I did 11 years ago. And so I went around different cemeteries around southwest London. They're all locked, which made me feel better. Um, and then it wasn't until the Monday morning that I received a text from him and uh, all, all was well, all was well. And so this last week we've been talking him through that journey and just what, what's, what's been happening. So hence the kind of leaning today towards death and dark thoughts that uh, I've been involved with in the, the last week or so. Um, but as we look at this scripture, uh, I think there's a slide, that it's the key, that it's, this is the keystone of the seven miracles. And so it's important to consider a passage like this and where it fits into the context of which, where Jesus is up to, but also what the author, what John is trying to tell us. And so it's an important question to ask, why did Jesus do miracles in the first place? We're about to see, we, we just read about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Why does he do that? When considering that Lazarus is just about to die, he's gonna die again. Seems kind of strange. Uh, and my kind of my mind this week, I've been thinking about what was Lazarus's second funeral like? What was that like? Um, it gets weirder, and I was reading some uh, books on this. Just, I was trying to ask the question, how old was Lazarus when he died the second time? And it ranges from a week to decades. And then I started thinking, well, if he died a week later, the Easter story gets really weird. Because it says in, when Jesus, when he hung up on a cross, there was an, in Matthew 28, there was an earthquake, rocks broke, and people who were dead the righteous ones, they walked around. So Lazarus dies. Imagine if he died before Jesus died. He would, so that's my mind this week. Like, and then would he have died again? And would, he, would if he had had a third funeral? Who knows? What's going on here? <laughs> What's going on here? You see, everyone that Jesus healed when he was on earth died. So what's the point of these miracles? Uh, now, look at these miracles, these seven miracles in, in John, and he lists them. First, we have, so just imagine them growing in more potency and more power. So, in John, the first miracle that we read about is when Jesus turns water into wine. Second one, Jesus heals an official son. Third one, he heals a lame man at a pool. Fourth one, he feeds the 5,000. Fifth one, he walks on water, calms the storm. Can you see it? And the sixth one, he heals uh, the, the man born blind. And then the seventh one here, he raises Lazarus from the, death, from the dead. They're here. I want us to think about their increase and their potency, their efficacy. They get more intense. You see, there's a difference between creating party fuel when Jesus turned water into wine there's a difference between that than raising someone from the dead, right? They're both miracles, but I just want to propose this. Here's the, here's the difference. What, jo what John is trying to say, he's got, his, he's got the Hebrew in mind, the Jewish 
uh, religious Jews in mind. The number seven is not an insignificant number for a Hebrew, for a religious Jew. It's probably one of the most important numbers. It would always relate to creation. And what, Jew, what John is doing here, he's thinking about the reader in mind, and he's getting the reader to think back to what's going on. There's seven miracles, the seven I am statements. He's getting them to think about Genesis, because it's all about creation. Seven for a Hebrew mind is all about creation. Now, he, we know he's doing this because he starts the gospel this way. John, chapter one, in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. John, throughout these seven miracles, these seven I am statements, he's saying that God created the world, and in Jesus, the world is being remade again. And these miracles are just simply pointing to that. For the reader in mind, they're pointing back to creation. See, on the surface, they, you know, turning water into wine just looks like a magic trick. Some people have said it's just a crowd-gathering technique. You know, when we go to Covent Garden, we see the, the street performers. Like, how can we create a buzz so people can be attra attracted to us? And so some people say that the healings were just a, a magic trick in order for people to come round so that Jesus could preach at them. And I want to say that's a really thin view of the miracles. Because in John, John uses a word for miracles, and he calls them signs. He calls them signs, meaning that each of these, what does the sign do? Points somewhere else. These miracles show us something about God and what he's like, uh, what it looks like when God gets his way. And again, hear the, hear the phrase, and begins to recreate the broken, dying world. And so each of these signs points to somewhere else. And I believe the hunger and needs that you and I have will be forever satisfied. That heaven is a place where no one has need. There's, heaven's a place where there's no sickness, there's no pain any longer. And death itself is overcome. We won't need to worry about death in heaven. This means the seventh miracle here, maybe the next slide, is a sort of keystone the one that says that all other things ultimately point to the reality where God makes everything new again. And even death can be overcome. And again, each of the signs point to somewhere else. And the seventh one I want to propose is the keystone where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Big, big question. Why did Jesus wait four days? We know he could have just said a word wherever he was and that person would be healed. Why did he wait for Lazarus to die? And so he gets word three, four days earlier. He told that his friend is dying. But he doesn't go, does he? Why doesn't he go? Why doesn't he go immediately? His friend's just died. We, we read from this passage that he's wandering around the wilderness. And so earlier, why did he wait? Why did he wait? And I, I want to propose there's a simple reason. Number one, he does what he always does. He's just listening. He's only doing what he sees the Father doing. So he's waiting for instructions from Father. But also there's a physical one. Uh, it might be a physical one that, that he experienced, that he was experienced, but also as we read 
John 8, 9 and 10, we get an insight. Uh, Back in John chapter 10, the Jews are coming to him and saying, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Tell us, tell us plainly. And he makes this claim because he says, you can't see that I and the Father are one. He tells them, you can't see that. And he makes this claim that he is the Messiah and that he is God themselves. And in John 10, they tried to seize him and kill him at the time. And he runs away, he gets away. He's wandering around the wilderness, kind of hiding. Uh, he does this a second time in John 10, in John 8. He, it's exactly the same situation. They tried to seize him and kill him. And I wonder whether Jesus is doing the maths, or math for the American, math. Maths, maths. <laughs> He's saying, if I'm hanging around Jerusalem, anywhere, there are people out to kill me. Maybe it's not my time. There's way, um, if I go to Jerusalem, there are people there to grab and kill me. But eventually, four days later, three days later, he says, okay, I'm going. And previously, fantastic bit of scripture, John 11. Up earlier in, in John chapter 11, Jesus says to his disciples, okay, let's go. Let's go see Lazarus. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, he doesn't speak much in any of the, many of the Gospels, but he says to Jesus, oh, okay, that's the place then. We're about to die then. If we go anywhere, and he says, if we go anywhere near Jerusalem, we know what's going to happen. They're going to grab us, and they're going to go and kill us. You see, that's really important context for what's, what we've just read. Jesus then walks up to where Lazarus is now dead, and then we have um, this interchange between Mary and Martha. I wonder if we've got that text there in verse 22. It's really interesting. I'm trying to give you some context so then I can punch you hard. That's where I'm, that's where I'm heading. <laughs> verse 22. Um, Martha says, Master, Master, if, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Uh, I, I practiced this phrase a number of times, trying to get the tone, and I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure out the tone. She was pretty upset with him. She's pretty upset with Jesus. And um, we, don't, we don't know, but whatever it is, she's starting to state some facts about what she believes. She believes that Jesus can raise him from the dead. She believes you could have done it, Jesus, but you weren't here. And then listen to how it goes. Uh, Jesus says in 23, your brother will be raised up. And then Martha's like, I know he's going to be raised up at the resurrection at the end times. What she says is a theological correct sentence. See, good Jews at the time would have believed that at the end, uh, someday all the dead will rise and they'll all be judged and they would go wherever they go. And so she gives this theological thought here. She says, I know it's going to happen someday, but she can't conceive what Jesus is talking about at this point. Jesus is saying the things of the future can break in. Heaven can be released on earth now. What we think of end times, we need to reverse engineer that we can have heaven now on earth. And she hasn't got that. A good Jew at the time, would, that would have just blown her thinking and her theological framework. Listen to verse 25, 26. 
You don't have to wait for an end. I am, right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives, believing in me, uh, does not ultimately die at all. I love the question, do you believe this? Yes, Master, all along I believe that you're the Messiah, the, the Son of God who comes to the world. Then along comes Mary. Same question, Master, if only you'd been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. Now, the reason why I've chosen the message is because for some of us who are followers of Jesus, we might have heard this story, read this story, heard preachers about this story, and I wanted just to change some of the language here. Let me describe it. When Jesus saw her sobbing, uh, maybe the next verse. Sorry, I, can't, I haven't written that down. When Jesus saw her sobbing, the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within her. The Greek is more about anger. Jesus said, where did you put him? Master, uh, uh, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others among, there's always a critic, right? Others among, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something and keep him from dying? There's always a critic. <laughs> there's always a couple of critics standing around. But there's a whole bunch of interesting things happening here that I want to leave with you. Uh, some of your translation might say things like he was deeply troubled, or he was moved, or he was stirred in spirit. Uh, I think there are, some of the theological books I've read, they, they'd say that they're weak translations of that particular Greek. Eugene Peterson captures it, for he says, for he was angered. The emotional word doesn't describe some kind of sentimental sadness. He was stirred. He was flipping angry. And we can see this sense of conflict in Jesus now. And I want to propose he's angry because he's staring death in its face. It makes him angry. But then his anger turns to sadness. And then we have Jesus wept. Then I go, why? My brain, forgive me. Why did Jesus cry then? He's had four days to cry. He didn't cry when he was first told. He didn't cry when Martha came. He didn't cry when Mary came. Why did Jesus cry? Um, and I've heard people talk about this passage. And they say he wept because he loved him. He loved Lazarus so much. Because that's what the Jews say as well. The Jews say, look how deeply he loved him. Now, John's my favorite book. Having studied John, John is often this sign. He's trying to point to something. And here's what he's trying to tip us off to. Every time in John you read, the Jews said, it's because they're always wrong. <laughs> Every time you read in John, the Jews said, it's because they're always wrong. It's almost like he's let, letting the hearer read, hear the, hear the wrong interpretation, so he, can, he or she can read through the lines of what's really going on. Jesus doesn't hear, doesn't cry when he hears that Lazarus is dead. Uh, I want to propose he cries when he sees the tomb. He sees the tomb, this mixture of anger and sorrow hits him. He starts to cry. Uh, let me just caveat. I'm sure it was emotional seeing his friend die. 
But if he's about to pull him out of the grave, it's just sentimentality. It's just this conflicted God who's a bit weak and emotional and sentimental, but then he's about to perform a, a miracle. Why would he cry then? And that's why it's really important to read and understand the rest of John. He cries because he looks at the tomb and he realises in that moment what I'm about to do by pulling Lazarus out the tomb is going to put me in the tomb. In that moment. What Jesus is about to do then forms a catalytic moment where he now is heading to the tomb. He knows that giving his life for this man's life, that at that moment when he pulls him out the grave, that news is going to explode. How far away is he? He's two miles from Jerusalem. Two miles from Jerusalem. The news is going to ripple through the area, and it does. It ripples in the area. And we're going to see him in the next series of events that next week go into Jerusalem when he crosses out of the wilderness into Bethany, he's preparing to die. Which, of course, is what Jesus came to do for you and I. He takes on death so that you and I might live. And that's the entire point of the Gospel. We could kind of clo close our books now. The Gospel of John is pointing towards what Jesus has ultimately done. But he stares death in the face. And I imagine him weeping on different levels. He's weeping through the choice that he's made to, to go into great pain and suffering. But he enters in. Tom Wright, the fantastic British theologian, he describes this passage and he says, the passage, again, hear the language, points forward to the questions that will be asked at Jesus' own death. Couldn't the man who did so many signs have brought it about that he himself didn't have to die? Couldn't the one who saved so many have in the end saved himself. So John, with a thousand hints and metaphors and images, is pointing that it's only through Jesus' death, it's only through his own sharing of the common fate of humanity. All of us, we all face death, and Jesus is sharing in our death that the whole world can be saved, that you and I can be saved. And I want to say there's a straight line from verse 35 when Jesus says, when Jesus wept. There's a straight line now uh, from the, when Jesus wept to his own death. You see, throughout John, Jesus has been going in and out of Jerusalem like a zigzag, and he's kind of all over the place. If you look at the map, like do a like Google route, like an Uber route of Jesus' route. It's zigzags and circles. But the next time he enters Jerusalem, people are standing and the crowds are singing, Hosanna the King. Four days later, a few days later, that same crowd that are celebrating him are now shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus knows he's sealing his own fate that we might live, that you and I might live. And Jesus is pointing forward to a resurrection that only he himself brings, not just for himself, but the whole world, you and I. This is, this is why I believe Jesus weeps. It's not that when we, I, I wonder whether he thought about us. It's 
not just when we die, but, but for the little things and the little ways that we're being killed every day. Little ways that you, you and I are dying right now. All the pieces of bitterness, all the pieces of fear, all the pieces of brokenness that just run through your life. And Jesus is saying to you, come to me. I'm not a thief. Thief. <laughs> See, a thief comes to, to steal, to take and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly, abundant life. And when can you have it? Reverse engineer it. When can you have it? Now. We can have it now. Jesus is saying, if I can overcome death, I can overcome anything. And this is powerful. In that moment, Jesus wept. This is a powerful thought for us. I also think it's got powerful implications how we live in our week, even today, how we live each day. So, uh, final question. What's killing you? That's my punch. What's killing you? How are you letting a desire or an addiction run through your life? And I want to say it's killing you. Uh, having, having spent time with people who've, had, who've let desire and addiction run through their life, it's killing you. Does, God, I promise, doesn't come and say, you should just stop drinking because that's what good, good boys and good girls do, or even what good leaders do. He comes and says, the desire is running over your life. You're dying. It's killing you. And he says to some of you, I made your body. I know how, how, sh how it should work sexually. When you don't obey and you allow other desires to crush you, it's killing you. Uh, Jesus says, I've come to set you free. And I promise you, he's come to set you free. So I've sat with this man the last few days and just how I've seen him uh, put some things in the past and we, we literally buried some things the other day to leave stuff in the past where it belongs. And Jesus says to him and he says to you, I've come to give you life. I also want to say, when you allow unforgiveness and bitterness to run right through your life, it's killing you. It's destroying you. See, Christians, we're always talking about forgiveness. Like, oh, we should forgive. Oh, I've got to forgive. That's what a Christian should do. Um, I'm not asking you to forgive because that's what we do. Um, Jesus is saying it's so that you might have life. You might be set free. You might be set free. You might let go of that, stump, that stuff. Okay. We're going to take communion. Communion now. And... This is power that can tra change you. You see, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is here. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is here now. And he is the resurrection and the life. And for some of us, um, I want to say, do not despair. Do not let things kill you. Come into his life. Come into his light. Receive his power. Receive his glory of the, this resurrection power. Amen. So uh, what we're going to do now is our, our team 
that we've just got some bread and some grape juice. I think there's some gluten-free crackers at the back somewhere. They're probably not allowed to be on the same plate as the bread, um, but we won't, they haven't touched. We get complaints. <laughs> um, as we take it, I want us, I want you as an individual, we're told to come seriously. We're told to come uh, reverently to the table of God. And, to, and I want us to think about the things that are killing you. And as you partake in this, and as you break the bread and dip it into the grape juice, almost make the great exchange. As you take the bread and as you, or the oatcakes, as you dip it, Make this exchange with Jesus. Give him the things that are killing you. And it might be that you want to phone a friend, speak to a friend, and the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to heal us. So um, I'm going to invite the band to come back. I'm going to pray uh, just a blessing, simple blessing over us. Um, Jesus, I believe today, wants to wipe away any suicidal thoughts or any after effects where you've either attempted suicide, whether you've uh, been affected by a friend or family member who's uh, taken their life. Uh, Jesus wants to come and break addictions today. So if you want to be set free, last week a guy came Sunday he came at Balaam. Imagine Balaam's the same. He came here and we stood and we, we chatted. And he said, I've realized that I've let, uh, I, uh, to be away from God, I just want to smoke puff. I just, I want, I want to kind of forget my life. In, and so I kind of want to inhale this stuff to suppress uh, the uh, God-shaped hole in, in my life. And, and uh, we, we got rid of some drugs last Sunday morning um, and what we always do just flush them down the toilet it's great it's a great feeling um, so if you want to be free from any kind of addiction or drugs um, bring your whiskey bottles here bring your wine bring your beer bring your cannabis we can just uh, get rid of them anytime any any Sunday I promise I won't take them home uh, why don't we stand why don't we stand so Jesus set a whole bunch of people free today. Set them free. And I pray as people come, we would make this great exchange with you. Amen. So in your own time, just come, come as you are. Come as you are and take, partake in uh, communion. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.